How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I'm going to get straight into it because I have been reading a lot about the gold standard. I know it sounds kind of pretty pathetic, but I'm... I always knew you were a bit of a doomsday prepper. Well, no, it's not doomsday. Stash, stashing your gold. No, 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 it's on the contrary. I'm, I'm reading about the history, John, of the gold standard from middle part of the 19th century to FDR. Right. Who abandoned the gold standard in 1936. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out the politics of it. I'm trying to figure out, it's actually quite a lot to do with the battle between public money, fiat money, which we have, Mm -hmm. and private money. And this is a battle that's going on. And as inflation begins to rise now, lots and lots of people are saying, hold on a second, fiat money is the problem. And you have to eradicate fiat money and go back to something like gold or like crypto, or like Bitcoin, all that sort of stuff. So Mm. I'm reading a lot about the history to see what the history can tell us in terms of who is favoured, who is privileged by various different forms of money. Because again, the idea is that money was originally public. So in the very, very beginning of money, people minted their own money. Rich people had little brass and they minted them down. And then various different Roman emperors, and then subsequently other emperors said, hold on a second, this is too powerful to be left for private individuals. Right. So I'll make it. So basically, things like the army, the police, money, they all became part of, of the state. That's right. what I was interested okay. in, right? And then I was reading about an election in America in 1896, which was fought on the issue of whether they should have a gold standard or a silver standard. Right. And then that got me reading. And our old friend, Tom Frank, has written a fantastic book called The People Know, as opposed to, you know the way the great thing in America is, the people, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's saying the people know. It's a history. As in N-O, no. N-O, yeah, as in it's a history of populist movements in America that Tom believes are being besmirched and undermined and cheaply tarred with a brush by elites as being dangerous, nativist, racist. And you say, no, no, yeah. no, these movements weren't like that at all. So let's go and talk to Tom in Kansas, of course, of course. the history of populism. Why? Because we have an election coming up in a couple of years' time where 
one of the parties, Sinn Féin, is going to be described as populist. And this is going to be seen, that's a bad thing, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And other people, like in the UK, you have populist this, and all around the world, the word populism is described by us as nativist, nasty, demagogic, all that sort of, yeah. slightly dictatorial. Yeah, yeah. Let's look at the history of populism, see what Thomas is saying. Let's go to Kansas. Now I have on the line from Kansas, in the middle, the dead center of the United States, <laughs> one of the greats, one of the great political commentators in the United States, Tom Frank. I have been reading this book of Tom's, which is The People Know, and it's a history of populism. And I'll tell you why, because I've, I've my obsession with the gold standard. So I'm coming from a nerd. <laughs> Oh, man, did you ever come to the right place? Oh, 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 uh, uh, oh, you're not going to believe this, Mr. McWilliams, but uh, I'm here in my in my late father's house. He was a gold bug. Oh, fantastic. That is Just yesterday, we were going through his personal effects and found an envelope full of British sovereigns dated like 1905 or whatever the hell it was. Well, you see, I'm, I am now, I'm going through a period. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this bimetallism in the United States where you have people into silver, people into gold. The Yellow Brick Road, the story of yes. the entire story of the Yellow Brick Road is all about the gold standard. We told that story on the podcast about a year or two ago, and people were like blown away. They were really, I couldn't believe it. So they didn't, they didn't know that. They didn't know, but no, no, nobody no. knows that here. Well, let's straighten them out. Let's straighten them <laughs> out. There's also, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that, if it came through in uh, the book, if I mentioned it or not, but there was a populism Ireland connection. Well, let's talk Which, about it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk what, about what it. What I want to talk point. about, by the way, Tom is coming to Kilconomics. It's his first time in Ireland. He is going to, he's a Kilconomics virgin who's going to lose his Kilconomics virginity in about six weeks' time. It's going to be wonderful to have you. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that, Mr. McWilliams. You make it sound so. Uh... <laughs> you can only be disappointed. So, so inviting. <laughs> Tom, listen, let's talk, right? We are coming up, we're going to go into another election cycle. In the last couple of years, the word populism has been besmirched, denigrated, hijacked, and certainly has come to represent things that most people or many people do not like. And you've written this book, and this is how I got into the book, looking at the gold standard. You're saying, hold on a second, the history of populism is completely different. And in fact, populism yeah. is a solution to many problems. Explain to me, A, where does it come from? B, why it was undermined? C, why is it still relevant? Well, the, the fascinating thing is, like you say, I'm here in Kansas. It, it had to be a Kansan who wrote this book. Uh, because it, 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 Because people in Kansas know what populism was. This is a word that has a, uh, has a very distinct meaning to us. And it's a positive thing. Well, it depends on which side your ancestors were on, of course, but it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Uh, populism was, uh, the word was, and this is going to blow your mind, the word was invented in Kansas. And in my research for the book, I was able, this is the magic of you know doing historical research now. It's so different than when I was in graduate school. I was actually using modern tools, was able to find within a week when the word was coined. And I was able to find its first appearance in print, which was in May of 1891. Uh, the word populism was 
invented by a bunch of guys on a train traveling between Kansas City and Topeka, Kansas, not far from where I am sitting right now. And they, uh, they, they were trying to come up with a name for a brand new political movement, a third party. So in America, it has a two-party system, but every now and then someone will try a third party. And the last third party movement that succeeded was called populism. And it was in the 1890s. The state where they were biggest was this one, Kansas right here. And they conquered the state legislature in the year 1890. The populists did, although they weren't named populists for six more months. They came up, they deliberately, the name of the the official name of the party was like the People's Party or something like that. And they realized right away that was kind of a clunker that didn't fly. And so they needed to, they needed to come up with a word that really sang. And that, that was it. So these guys on a train were like, what's, what's going to be the name for our party and for the people who belong to it? And they came up with populist and uh, it stuck. <laughs> Did it ever stick? It caught on in a huge way. People who were voting populist, they didn't even know that the party had an official name. They just thought it was called the populist party. It was only referred to as the populist party. And that's where the word came from. And for many decades, that is basically all that the word referred to was this American third party movement. And then it started being applied to other movements that were similar. So tell me what it was, because what I'm interested in is this, is the thesis of the book is that this was a fantastically progressive, liberal, forward thinking mass movement of ordinary Joes, of ordinary people. Yes, that's exactly what it was. There, you took you took the words right out of my mouth. That is what it was. And it is deep in the political DNA of every democracy, this type of party. But, yes, but it has been besmirched. So, so explain yes, to has, me yeah. what it was, where it came from, and how it was then undermined. So it was a reform movement that focused on a handful of reforms, all of them, or most of them economic. They were overwhelmingly concerned with economic reforms, also some political reforms. They wanted full democracy in America. And it was overwhelmingly made up of farmers. They were the backbone of the movement, but the movement also reached out to uh, industrial workers. The word you would use in in Europe or in, in Ireland is class conscious. They were very, very, very upfront about being a working class party. Now, they did not use the word socialism to describe themselves, but obviously they verged on. So it was something very close to socialism in a lot of respects. There were all sorts of ways in which they were way ahead of the rest of the country. For example, their criticism of the gold standard is like uh, something that we would almost all agree with today. But at the time, it was extremely controversial. They thought women should have the right to vote, which was, again, a non-starter in those days. So a lot of a bunch of the leaders of the party were actually women, which was extremely unusual in American politics at the time. In fact, it was, well, it was unheard of. It was unusual everywhere because at the time, just as a total aside, there was a bicycle boom. There was a massive boom. Yes, there, yeah, there was. Yeah. In, in Western Europe, Ireland, Dublin had 128 bicycle manufacturers and the guy who came up with the rubber tire, which precipitated the entire thing, was a guy called Dunlop, who was buried in the same graveyard that my granddad is buried, Dean's Grange, up here. But part of the bicycle movement was feminism, and that people believed that the bicycle was an avenue for radical feminism. Why? Because women were free to travel on their own. So it's all in the mix in the late 19th <laughs> yeah, century. Yeah, the late 19th century, yeah. But, so, uh, so they were, they, but 
part of the reason for their openness to feminism was this is largely a movement that caught on on the frontier. So Kansas uh, and places to the West where women were de facto equals of men anyways. So every, you know, it, it didn't make sense that they weren't able to vote and stuff like that. Anyhow, populism, they demanded various reforms that we would now uh, associate with the New Deal or with the left wing of the Democratic Party. I'll tell you what they were. They wanted to get the country off the gold standard because gold was deflationary. They wanted to nationalize the railroad system. They wanted to nationalize the telegraphs. And they didn't like Wall Street. Oh, they wanted they wanted farm reforms. They wanted what we now would call a farm program. And oh, by the way, we have all these things now, except we never did nationalize the railroads in America, but we did regulate them. And we've, we've done all the things that they, that they wanted to do. And then they had a bunch of lesser reforms that they believed in. But all of those things now seem extremely rational. But at the time, populism was regarded as utterly insane. It was the ravings of people who were mentally damaged, being led by demagogues who were, in fact, hypnotists. It started out with a bang. They swept Kansas. They swept a bunch of states in the South. And I should also mention... They were, by the standards of the day, extremely progressive on racial politics. Now, by the standards of today, no, not so much. But by the standards of the 1890s, they were wildly enlightened. And they were doing well in the South. Their message in the South was that black farmers and white farmers should come together. At the time, black people in the South could still vote. Their idea was that black farmers and white farmers should come together against the white property owners. I don't know if you know anything about American history, but you get one guess how this was received in the South. <laughs> this was just absolute, utter anathema. And it led to basically a state of like of just people shooting each other all the time at election time, uh, you know, all kinds of violence. And it, populism succeeded in a bunch of places. But in the South, the uh, political machinery came down on them like a ton of bricks and crushed them. And then to make sure, once it had died down and the danger to the establishment was over, they disenfranchised the black population to make sure that something like this never happens again. They also disenfranchised a lot of poor whites. But that's where Jim Crow came from, was as a way to crush the populist movement. And Jim Crow, remind me, Jim Crow, the laws, the racial- No, Jim Crow was the Southern system of segregation and of uh, restricting the franchise. So they came up with all of these legal, in quotation marks, quasi-legal ways of denying black people the right to vote. So the right to vote is guaranteed in the Constitution and in the amendments at, adopted after the Civil War, but the, the Southern white leadership came up with ways to, the, the ruling class of the South. Sure. Sure. And their fear was populism. Their fear was this idea, this this mass movement of ordinary Joes. The fear was uh, black farmers and white farmers coming together, discovering that their class interests were the same and outweighed their racial animosity. And populism wasn't the only time this happened. It had happened a bunch of other times in local cases, but populism actually succeeded in a bunch of Area. So in the state of North Carolina, the populists actually won the state. The white populists came together with the black Republicans. Black voters at the time tended to be still affiliated with the Republican Party. Anyhow, they all came together and swept the state, just like they did in Kansas. And the state went crazy. They had, I mean, huge bouts of violence. It was dreadful what happened. But anyhow, that's populism. It was a reform movement, very, very forward-looking and his, up until the 1950s, historians knew that, and that's how they regarded it. This was a forerunner of our modern-day Democratic Party. So FDR would have been, 
Right. Felt if, like if, a forerunner of Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you should also know the story of how populism ended because that's an important part of the story. Uh, up until then, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, neither one of them could be described as a party of the left. There were left factions in both of those parties, but they were always on the outs. You know, I shouldn't say left factions. I should say reform factions. Populism was the first sort of party that was like the whole party was going to be a reform party and it was a working class party. And that was the idea. And what happened, and this is what always happens in America, is one of the two major parties decided to partially embrace what populism triangulation was wasn't that what clinton yeah that's did. the sort of later term for it yeah. yeah like you get the you get the good bits of the other guy and you yeah you inveigle yourself you can and steal you... their fi- steal their fire right yeah. and so the democratic party in 1896 and this is by the way all of everything i'm describing is happening at a time of terrible economic depression farmers are in terrible straits and the gold standard was in part to blame Industries and it's a terrible time. There are huge strikes in America. The Pullman strike uh, happened about this time. There was a march on Washington led by a populist. This was the first ever march of poor people on Washington. He called it a petition in boots. Oh, I uh, like that. Yeah, isn't that good? Yeah, that I like that. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So terrible things were happening. The Democratic Party meets for their convention in 1896, and lo and behold, they decide to embrace or not embrace radicalism, but to embrace a superficial, something that sounds radical. And what that is, is what you were, you were referring to at the very start of the show, bimetallism. They decided to embrace the silver standard. They're like, they're, we're, they're gonna, they're, we're gonna overthrow the gold standard and we're gonna embrace the silver standard instead. And now for the economists out there, there's, there's actually good reason behind this because silver is inflationary. We have a lot of silver yeah, in America. Yeah, there's more, America's we, silver, it doesn't have much, I didn't have much gold then. Doesn't general, have a lot of gold. We have there's some gold. It's the same. It's the same idea of allowing your currency to fall because you print more of it, and there's more silver yes. around. It's worth less than gold. You take yes. away now, the severe noose around people's neck of debt. You kind of loosen things yeah. up, and away you go. So, so just also for the non-economists, they should know that deflation is much much worse than inflation, especially for debtors. And farmers were debtors by yeah. definition. That's that's how you farmed. You borrowed at the beginning of the year. You paid it back. That's what every farmer did. And if the, if the currency is deflating, then you are screwed. And so farmers were automatically screwed year after year after year. And silver would have done a lot to solve this problem. The, the correct solution we now believe is what's called a fiat currency, where the government just designates a currency. Sure. No, so no. At this, stage, made up. at this stage, our Bitcoin audience is jumping up and down <laughs> and going mental. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny, though, David McWilliams, is that the populists figured this out 120 years ago, 130 years ago. They figured this out, that you needed a fiat currency for a modern economy. And they were regarded as lunatics and maniacs for suggesting this, you know. Well, because <laughs> I just think there's 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 a and it's a different we're going to sidetrack it's a different. But the strain of the gold bugs. The Bitcoin bugs who claim not to be gold bugs, but they're actually framed in exactly the same parameters. There is a very strong argument. We might come back to it between public and private money, which is, again, opens up a whole vista 
Oh yeah. Oh yes. And that was part of, that was part of this too. They, they would always say that the money supply has to be controlled by the people, by the government. Yeah. So it has to be public. Money has to be public. Yeah. It can't be controlled by JP Morgan. So that's, wait, I didn't finish the story of that, about how, what happened, how they ended. And I'll just say it really quickly. So uh, the Democrats meet for their convention. They embrace this sort of pseudo radicalism. They nominate for the presidency, a guy called William Jennings Bryan. He's from Nebraska, which is the state right north of here. Bryan talks like a populist. He has this kind of superficial workerist. Oh, and he's an amazing public speaker. Have you read, you read some of the, yeah. some of yeah, his yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, it's mind boggling. He was so good and uh, apparently was very impressive in person. And he was 36 years old, which is, you know, the youngest presidential candidate ever yeah. in our history. And the Democrats nominate this guy after he gives this phenomenal speech. They nominate this guy for president and they think he's going to win. And they set off you know, here we go. It's the great crusades of the currencies. It's the, the what do they call it? The battle of the currencies: silver versus gold. Silver is the people's medal. Gold is the medal of the, of the obnoxious elites. And the populists then meet for their convention and they're like, shit, look what they just did. You know, they just stole our main issue. What are we going to do? And so they debated among themselves and they finally said, Fuck it. We're going to endorse the Democrat, William Jennings Bryan, because if we don't, you know, it's pointless. Nobody's going to vote for our guy. But if we do, we have a he's going to win and then he'll give us seats in the cabinet or something like that. So they made this bid for power. And then long story short, they lost in the most incredible election of all time, the election of 1896. They're buried under this mountain of money. It's the first election where money makes this huge splash in American policy. But they crush populism. But the long term effect of this is the Democratic Party moves to the left and they they kept moving to the left. So after Brian, then you had Wilson, then you had Roosevelt, then you had Lyndon Johnson. And uh, they kept moving to the left up until Bill Clinton, who moved them back the other way. But that's how the Democratic Party became a party of, of the left was uh, thanks to populism. Now, what I, what I want to ask you, so we, we're, we're in the 90s, OK? Clinton moves back. And the, all this is against the background of Elections coming up. You've got your midterm elections. It's to give the listeners a sense of American politics, deep American politics, not just the snapshot on the talk shows, but like, where do these ideas come from? How did we get to a situation where a mass movement of Holy Joes is now associated with people like Liz Truss in England, Boris Johnson in England, they're called populists, Donald Trump in America, all of whom, <laughs> all of whom's very first action was to give tax cuts to the very rich. So yeah, how come yeah. populism has been besmirched? I had a guy who asked me the other day, he said, he said he was, he was annoyed at my description of, of what, what's now called right-wing populism. I call it phony populism because they do talk a workerist language. You know, they do use populist language, much like William Jennings Bryan did, but they don't, they don't mean anything by it. And it's, you know, it's often connected with the culture wars. The culture wars are conducted in this very workerist language. I've written about this at, in great, at great length. The culture wars are, are like a, a fake, a phony version of class politics. Okay, I'm And they, they work when the real deal is off the table. And the real deal has been off the table in this country for about 30 years, since mid-1980, early 19, yeah, no, but, more like the 70s. So, so wait a second, let's come back, right? How come a movement that was explicitly anti-elitist has been co-opted by various elites, number one, the good bits of it, the bad bits yeah. have been thrown to the sort of nativist lines, okay? And any politician that 
suggests populism is attacked by some of the very liberals who would hold dear some of the ideas of populism. How did that happen? Well, that's the book. I mean, that's it's. It took me how many three hundred pages? <laughs> it's actually. But by the way, I just want to say it's. In my opinion, I haven't looked at that book for months, and I just got it out before we started talking. And it is one hell of a fascinating story, isn't it? It's a great story. So, that's what I'm talking so about. I don't bring shite on the podcast. I bring good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So populism basically meant everything we just described. If you look at a dictionary from the 1890s, that's what it says. That's what populism is. If you look at a dictionary from the 1930s, it says that. And then it says any movement that is similar to that. So there was a movement in Russia that involved farmers. And so they started calling that populism. The Land League here was a great populist movement. Yeah. And so the the word would be used to describe sort of left-wing farmer labor movements. You would use it to – so in Minnesota, there was a group called the Farmer Labor Party in the 1930s that they would refer to that as populist. Okay. But then what happened was in the 1950s, the definition got entirely flipped, turned on its head. And it happened at the hands of a very, very famous American historian. I don't know if I ever told you this. I got a PhD in in American history. Did I ever tell you this? You didn't, but somebody else did because you're a humble guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and populism was one of the things that I studied and I became fascinated by this, the way the word was inverted. Now I never wrote about this before until this book, but uh, it was inverted by a guy called Richard Hofstadter, who was the leading American historian of the day. He was the most influential, probably the most influential American historian of all time. And everybody respected him. Everybody loved him. He was a great writer uh, and a brilliant, perceptive. He was a cultural, a historian of culture. And his what he brought to the table that nobody else did is he, he worked uh, psychology, psychological insights into his take on things. And what he did, it, he didn't like populism. He was a New Yorker, was at Columbia University, which was then regarded as the, the, the core institution of American history. That's where you went if you were yeah. serious about studying American history. He was at Columbia University in New York City, and he hated the populist movement, this movement in the 1890s. He hated it. And he went after them again and again and again and again in all of these different articles that he wrote. And then he finally wrote a book about it. He wrote more than one book about it, too. Uh, But the one that really did a number on them was called The Age of Reform, where he describes different reform movements starting with populism, a third of the book about populism, then a bunch is about the New Deal, and then a bunch is about the, what, the present, the enlightened present of the 1950s. And basically, it's a, it's a full-throated attack on populism for being paranoid, backward-looking, all the, the stereotype that we hold today. When someone says Donald Trump is a populist, they're referring to the stereotype that Richard Hofstadter invented. Okay. Uh, he, he said they were anti-Semites, uh, they were against modernity, they were led by demagogues, and there was a mental illness involved. He called it uh, status anxiety. That was his term. Which you would so have. These were, you would have status anxiety if your status was lower than everybody else's. Yes, and the, the, but the idea is that farmers are on their way down, and so therefore they lash out. There's a lot of resentment. The problem with this, as later historians pointed out, is that if you really try, you can describe anyone as having status anxiety. We all have status <laughs> it's, anxiety. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's totally bad faith to, to just apply this to populism and nobody else. Anyhow, why did he do this? So he didn't did, – uh, what I discovered in my research is he didn't invent this stereotype at all. He took it from the 
conservative publications of the 1890s that were attacking the original populism. And they were saying it was like the Jacobins during the French Revolution. It was insane. It was demagogues. Do you remember that book? I don't know if you read this this stuff. There's a French early French psychologist called uh, Gustave Le Bon. He wrote a book called The Crowd uh, about crowd psychology. He was a cousin of Simon Le Bon, John. John, John. <laughs> no, no. Anyhow, he, uh, Gustave Le Bon, the, the idea was that when ordinary people gathered together in a mob, they, were, they became subhuman. And they reacted to demagogues and they did awful things and they were psychologically damaged. And he was very conservative. He didn't believe in democracy. This is a guy that this, – all of this stuff is very um, – the people who hated populism basically hated democracy itself. You this can't be I allowing farmers to make national monetary policy. That's insane. They're not experts. Hofstadter comes along, and, and Hofstadter is from a generation of experts. And that sounds weird, right, because generations and expertise are two different things. But he comes along in the 1950s, which is this great moment Sure, the, for, the men in the white coats – the, yes, the, the, science, the man in the, the gray experts. flannel suit. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a great moment for the managerial philosophy. The U American universities are expanding by leaps and bounds. They're hiring um, people with PhDs to run the Pentagon, to run businesses. MBAs are taking over businesses. The They're no longer being. Yes, the whiz kids from uh, from IBM or from in, in Kennedy's cabinet. Uh, they, they dreamed up the Vietnam War. Hey, we got Mr. McWilliams. We got this great, great idea. We're going to go and have a war in Southeast Asia. These are the, the brilliant, the thought leaders of American society. They all had PhDs like Robert McNamara. They, you know, I don't remember if he had a PhD or not, but he was one of the, the whiz kids. He was but very whizzy. He was the most whizzy of all the whiz kids. Uh, Henry Kissinger is part of this. Uh, MBAs are taking over the corporations. Everything is being run by – expertise is coming into its own in this period. And what Hofstadter was doing was writing a manifesto for reform by expert. And so he looks at populism, which is mass movement of ordinary people demanding certain changes, and he says that model can never work. Because the masses are deluded, they are easily led astray, uh, they believe in conspiracy theories, they're in the grip of status anxiety. Sure, and demagogues uh, and they, all and they're, and they're racist, and they're racist, by the way, which was just a total – it was extremely bad historical practice. Let's put it that way. His evidence for this was really thin. But his stereotype flattered his cohort. So all these other intellectuals coming out of the Ivy League and running America, you know, taking over the sociology departments, taking over the whatever, they say that is exactly right. The way you get reform is by putting people like us in charge. We represent different interest groups. We all sit around the big mahogany table in Washington and we hammer something out. We come to what's the word, Mr. McWilliams? Consensus. Easily manufactured. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get reform in America. It's not by having a, a mass movement of crazy people led by, you know, these shrieking, you know, farm women in Kansas. I just can't wait. This this podcast is going to be called The Tyranny of Consensus. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's actually a great, great title. It's quite good. Nice going. I, nice I, going. I should rename I should rename the book that, you know. <laughs> we are gonna to have to we are going to have to who's gonna fly. You are going to be in Kilkenny talking about this and other things. 
giving a discussion, giving informing. I can't wait to hear this. Okay, in the one last word. Go. Whenever people use the word populism in that way, they're using it incorrectly. They're using Hofstadter's definition. Hofstadter was badly refuted. So his works among American historians are no longer read. They're considered discredited. His take on populism was, was blown apart by other historians in a very short amount of time. But among intellectuals generally, they still think he was right. So... So let us disprove him. It's the tyranny of consensus. We don't need to. I, 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 you got me. I'll just uh... <laughs> Tom, Frank, great to talk to you. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm really looking forward to it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's full on, Tom. Tom is full on, but you imagine in Kilconomics. Oh, he'd be brilliant. He'd it's be brilliant. Be Get them off the stage is going to be the it's problem. It's going to be fantastic because what he is, is Tom is the intellectual antidote to the know-all elitist yeah. who says, no, 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 I know what's happening. Now, the problem is Tom's idea of popular movements, mass movements of ordinary Joes has been sort of hijacked by all sorts of dodgy movements like the likes of Brexit. And of course, the idea in Brexit was we've no time for experts. Yes. We let the people decide. So there's a, there's a lot to unpick and tease out there. But fascinatingly, if you look forward to the next few elections all over the world, yeah. they're going to be between the people with money, with power, with privilege, with prestige, okay, status, who have been unbelievably favored in a period of low interest rates over the last 10 years against the people, the mass movement of people who can't afford rent, who can't afford yeah. housing, yeah. who are just on not so much the breadline, it's not on the breadline, but they've no savings. It's that sense. And it's going to be a movement. Disenfranchised. It's going to be a movement between insiders, as we always said, and outsiders. And Tom's basically saying the outsiders are the populists. And to undermine that by saying it's all negative is to take away the legitimate grievances that many people have. And that's what elections are going to be about. 
Mark, before we go, tell me a little bit about Kilkenomics. Kilkenomics, John, the world's only festival of comedy and economics. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish who's the comedian, who's the economist, <laughs> but it is that the truth? November the 3rd to the 6th in Kilkenny. One city, three nights, 50 plus events, and we are covering all sorts, everything, the whole gamut, global issues, local issues, future issues, past history, the whole thing. And it's a total laugh because, again, the comedians stand in the middle and they make sure that the economists speak in normal language. <laughs> and when they start guffawing and going through jargon, they get the piss taken out of them. Proper order, too. Loads of laughs, loads of crack, and loads of knowledge. Get your tickets at kilkenomics.com. Kilkenomics.